Hey guys, welcome back to yet another episode of A Second Chance Stories of Young Offenders. We're your hosts, Calista Lin, Akshay Keshri, and Sophia Luisi, and we're beyond excited to introduce a very special guest who's joining us. Jose Piero Burgos, a dedicated advocate and former juvenile lifer, has spent 27 years committed to criminal justice reform. As a Michigan campaign coordinator at the Campaign for Fair Sentencing of Youth, he champions equitable sentencing and second chances for young offenders. Please welcome Jose. Hi, Jose. We just wanted to say that we are honored that you are joining us today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm honored to be here. I'm so glad to hear that. To start off, could you share how your personal upbringing and experiences have influenced your commitment to criminal justice reform, especially con- concerning youth sentencing? So specifically, what did your journey to jail look like? Can you give us a background of your story and your life? Yeah, yeah, I can I can give you a quick a quick summary. Um I was born in Puerto Rico. Um not too long after several years after I was born, um we migrated to to the United States, the mainland. Um, me and my family, my grandparents, my mother, my siblings, we went to New, uh to Florida. From Florida, we went to New York, and then ultimately um we ended up here in Detroit. Um, in Detroit um, is where I ultimately caught my case. Um, I was 16 years old at the time of my arrest. Um, at the time of my arrest, I had already dropped out of junior high school, so I actually never made it to 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 um, to high school. You know, I dropped off in, in middle school, and I think you know one of the things you know my my trajectory into into you know a life of crime and ultimately prison um, came. It really started like at, at the age of 13. Um, at the age of 13, I suffered my mother's, uh, she had committed suicide. Um, and at the time, I didn't I didn't realize how much her death had affected me at the time. So um, I just started like just looking for things, you know, what I felt what I was, lo- I had lost at home, which was like a sense of family. Um, I actually went to the streets and, and got involved in gangs and gangs. You know, one of the things that gangs um, are real good at are, is um, providing a false sense of family. You know what I'm saying? So when, once I got involved in that, that was my introduction to, you know, acts of violence or being around violence and seeing it. And so at the age of 16, um, I was arrested um, with several others. Um, it wasn't a gang related um, um, case, but being in the gangs is what introduced me to the type of lifestyle that ultimately landed me um, there at that day. Um, I went along with several others. We were in the process of it was a drug deal that went bad. I mean, you have both the buyer and the sellers were there for the same reasons. We were trying to rob each other. So nobody had money. Nobody had had drugs. And unfortunately, um, you know, somebody ended up losing their life. Um, somebody also, a twin brother, actually, the victims were two twin brothers. One of them um, lost his life and the other one um, was paralyzed from the neck down. And so as a result, I was charged as an adult. And ultimately, I was giving um, a life without parole sentence, along with two 15 to 30 year uh, sentences, which is how um, it is that I ended up in prison. I'm so sorry to hear about the difficulties you had to go through in your childhood, Jose, but your journey from being a juvenile lifer to working with criminal justice reform is remarkable. So can you share some key moments or experiences during your 27 years of incarceration that shaped your perspective on reforming the criminal justice system? You know, when I first went in, when I first went in as a child, I never knew that that children could be sentenced to life without parole. So I'll start with, I'll start there. And then, so when I went in, but even when after I had got sentenced, I don't think that I really, really understood the ramifications of, of, of my actions. I really didn't understand, you know, what that actually really, really meant, you know, life without parole. 
Um, and it wasn't until I got like a little bit older, you know, I, I realized that life without parole meant that I was going to die in prison. And so um, there came a time, there came a time, I think it, it might have been 12, 13 years into my into my sentence, when, when I found myself um, in a segregation cell. So segregation is, is you know, the way they push you, you know, if you get in trouble in the system. And I found myself, honestly, you know, I, I share this story a lot where I, I found myself having a conversation with God, right? I was looking around in that cell and, you know, it was like I couldn't get no lower in life than where I was at that moment, you know, and I, and I had a conversation with God, man. And I, and I basically just said, like, you know, this can't be it, you know, right? Like this can't, my life can't end like this, you know what I'm saying? I, I know that I have more to offer, um, whether that be in prison or outside, you know, and, and at, even then I didn't really understand or know that how I was going to get out of prison. Um, but I think when I, when I, when I finally came to that realization, I knew that I had to do something different, right? Because I was living the type, same type of lifestyle in prison, you know, when I first started that landed me, you know, in prison in the first place. So I wanted to know, I wanted to make sure that I, I, I changed that pattern. So um, from that moment on, you know, um, I ended up getting out of segregation. I actually bought me like an old school typewriter, taught myself how to type and literally, you know, really, really got involved uh, with the juvenile life for a movement. Actually, when I was in segregation, not too long after I had that conversation with God, is when I got my first letter from an attorney by the name of Deborah LaBelle here in uh, in the state of Michigan, who was doing a study on juvenile lifers. And she was like, hey, you know, we think that this is an unconstitutional sentence. Would you be willing to participate in this study? And so I got involved. And from that point on, it was just like, you know, my, my entire life changed, you know, uh, within the system. Um, really, really just started focusing on working on my case, studying my case, going to the law library, um, getting into as many programs as possible. And I just wanted to do better, you know, and I, and I think that was the moment that I said, you know, enough is enough. You know, something better has to come out of this. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. I think your story is beyond inspiring and serves as such a good example to those who might be struggling right now. Um, you know, with incarceration. Um, I think every offender or form, former offender has their own story. And, you know, juvenile lifers often face unique challenges when reintegrating into society. Um, could you tell us about your own experiences after release and how they've influenced your work in advocating for reform and supporting others in similar situations? Well, you know, I think one of the one of the things that helped me the most when I first came home was the fact that I still had a family and I still had some friends that had really, you know, stood by me throughout, you know, those those years. Um, there were friends who I met while I was incarcerated that were also part of my life once I came home. And so when I came home, um, you know, when I went to get resentenced as a juvenile lifer, when I went back and gave my life, you know, sentence back in court, I actually told the judge that, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do, I wanted to make something good come out of something bad, you know, because I knew that. Um, that I wasn't just like the worst moment of my life. I know that, you know, there was more to me. So I wanted to, you know, I, and I wanted to come, you know, make like I said, make something good come out of something bad. I'm um, here. It is, you know, you had a young man who lost his life. You had a young man who was still actually at the time of my resentencing living with, with the injuries that I had caused. And I didn't want to just come out here. You know, I would have, wouldn't have had mine working at a factory or something like that, but I wanted something more for my life. Right. So when I came home, um, I sat back one day and I was thinking like, man, you know, because when I came home, I had I had difficulties getting my state ID because I didn't have a birth certificate. So for an entire year, I didn't have a state ID, which made, you know, made, you know, getting a, a, a good, meaningful job, you know, hard. Um, 
but I, but I still, even without an ID, because I had a family, because I had friends and, you know, you know, I, I was able to find a job under the table, getting paid without having to have an ID. I sat back and I thought one day, I said, man, I said, I wonder how, how hard this would be, or I, I can imagine how difficult this could be if you didn't have a support system. And so, um, you know, I had, I was already maintaining communication with those that were coming home on parole. And I just had this, 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 this urge, man, to, to, to really, I knew that in order to change a system, the only way we can change a system is those who have been impacted by that system had to be willing to, to speak out, right? And so that's not for everybody. I mean, there's a lot of people who come home and don't want to get involved, and that's okay. That's you know that you know they they have the right to do that um, because it is very traumatic. Um, but I knew that the way for me to do this was just to really, really be transparent about my experience and about the fact that um you know, children, children should never, hope should never be taken away from children. You know what I'm saying? And so that's, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that children at least, you know, it's not to say that they shouldn't be held accountable for their actions, but um, once they do get incarcerated, they should at least have an opportunity to say, hey, I'm no longer that person. I'm a different person now. And, uh, and for these reasons, I deserve a second chance. So that's what really got me involved in the work. Speaking of second chance, I'm glad you said that because that's our podcast name. But many people might not fully understand the challenges faced by juvenile lifers upon release. Can you go more in depth about the switch that went off in your head, the bulb that went off when you were like, I'm going to completely drop this side of my life and I'm going to change myself and change who I'm going to be from the future. And could you shed light on from that point on, on some of these challenges such as securing employment, housing, mental health support, and education, and what solutions do you believe can address these issues effectively? So that's like a three-pronged three prong question. Well, you know, I think what's unique about, about my experience is the fact that, you know, a year after I got I came home, I became a reentry specialist at the State Appellate Defender's Office here uh, in the state of Michigan. So I was actually doing reentry work. So I have a perspective, a, a, pers a personal perspective because I went through it. And then I also have a pers professional perspective because I was able to uh, give assistance to a lot of the guys that came home, uh, in particular juvenile lifers. Um, and really, you know, there's 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 a population of juvenile lifers that unfortunately, you know, have been gone so long that some of them come home and they don't have no family. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they don't have no family, they don't have no friends. There are some that, you know, um, you know, they have been incarcerated so long, you know, they bought into the fact that, hey, man, I, I may never get out. You know what I'm saying? So they really didn't have a plan. You know what I'm saying? Because sometimes for in some cases, it happened so fast that, you know, from the time they got resentenced within days or months, they're released after, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And so, you know, that presented some challenges, you know what I'm saying? So I was, you know, I was able to go get guys um, from the prison, um, pick them up. Um, you know, one of the things that I, you know, they needed to learn how to do was like use phones because, you know, you know, like myself, many of us went in, the internet didn't exist. Um, cell phones were cell phones. I mean, when I talk about a cell phone back in the day, we're talking like, you know, it was like a big old carrying box, right? And so, you know, so that was why probably one of the first biggest challenges is learning how to use technology. You know what I'm saying? Because we know that a lot of places that you go to apply for jobs uh, want you to apply online. And so just learning how to, how to, how to do that, you know, learning myself how to do it and then learning in a, in a way that I was able to teach others uh, 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 those, those, those skills as well. Um, how to submit a resume. I mean, there's challenges with, with employment because now, um, you know, you don't have no real, you know, life experience with work out here. And so, and then you got some places that, that actually give you a job and then, you know, come back, you know, with a, a few weeks later. So, oh, by the way, 
you know, we ran a, a background check on you, and it turns out that you're you're a convicted felon, especially for for a homicide. So therefore, we we gotta let you go, right? So that that happens a lot. Um, housing, you know, what I'm saying um, there's many many people that come home that don't have housing, so they're temporarily housed by the Michigan Department of Corrections, and then when they're able to you know secure employment, secure money for 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 housing, um, when they go submit these applications. Often, you know, after being charged 70, 80, 90, 100 dollars to submit these applications for these, these apartments, um, they're denied because of their background, because they have a criminal conviction. Um for working, you know what I'm saying? You got some people, let's say, for example, um, you have guys who come home and they go to they go to like a CDL class, right? Learn how to drive trucks. So you go you get get a CDL license and, and you think you're ready to work, but now all of a sudden they're telling you that. Oh, uh, we can't hire you because you don't have no experience. Well, what do you mean? You know what I'm saying? Like everybody who started in this in this field didn't have experience when they first started. You know what I'm saying? So there's a lot of obstacles, man, that 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 get in the way. But I think what's been very, very helpful, and I think um this is a model that I think should be followed across the country, is the fact that a lot of times when we get out of prison on parole, we are told that we should not associate with other known felons. You know, I'm a big believer. That and I, and I you know I've been an example of it myself is that you know we can help each other more than anybody else can you know what I'm saying so I think you know like here you know we we here in Michigan we have a very close knit uh, community of former juvenile lifers and we often share resources with each other like there's some jobs coming up you know what I'm saying I share them with them uh, if there's an event coming up or some advocacy work I share that with them. Um, if they need a ride to to go see the parole board I mean just go see the parole agent or something like that you know what I'm saying we always like. You know, just look out for each other, man. And I think, um, I think that is that is what's keeping a lot of people, man. There's been a a, a big shift in in that, man. And it's, you know, guys are staying home because um, those of us who have experienced that situation, we know what it's like. We don't want you to go back. We want to keep our community safe, and therefore, you know, we're going to make sure that you get everything you need to succeed out here. Thank you for that. And. You've served a lengthy sentence as a juvenile lifer. How did you maintain hope and motivation like during those years? And how has the resilience shaped your approach to advocacy and reform? You know, it was it was at, at first, I'm not gonna lie, man, like it was very, very scary. You know what I'm saying? Like it was very scary to go in there at such a young age and being told that you're not gonna, you know, you're never gonna come home. And you sit back, I used to watch like some of the old hits that had been there for decades and had basically given up, right? So you know, I, I used to look at others that were like in just in a dark place mentally. And I was afraid of that. You know what I'm saying? I, I got scared of, of you know, uh, you know, getting into, you know, letting, allowing prison to become me. I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. That was, you know, it, it, you know, prison is a very ugly pace, especially for children. And so that motivated me, that motivated me um, to, uh, you know, even though I had life without parole, there was always that little glimpse of hope, you know what I'm saying? Even before, you know, anything, any the conversations came up about juvenile lifers, I always had a little glimpse of hope. I didn't know how it was going to happen, but I knew, I knew deep down inside there was something just morally wrong about sending children to spend the rest of their lives in prison, right? I didn't know who was going to fix that. I didn't know when the conversation was going to start, but I held on to that. And so that kept me, you know, that kept me aligned in prison. That kept me from, from falling too far into the politics of prison because, you know, the politics of prison um, can really, really swallow human being up, you know? And so, and then, you know, once, once I knew that, that, you know, I was going to have that opportunity to come home, I thought about the people who raised me in prison, you know what I'm saying? The mentors of those who, who gave me guidance. And, you know, I've, I've met some just extremely wonderful, just good people in prison, man, that just made some very, very horrible mistakes. You know what I'm saying? And before I got out, I used to remember 
what it used to make me feel like when I used to hear about somebody who was formerly incarcerated that was out here advocating and I, and I knew how good that made me feel. I know, I, you know, I understood how, how good it made, how, what, what it did for my hope. Right. And so I always told myself that if I ever give an opportunity to do so, when I go home, I want to be able to give that hope back to somebody that's still in there, you know, fighting to get out. So that's, that's what, that's been my drive. So, I know the process of adapting to life outside of prison can be extremely daunting. So I know you're saying that your mindset was specifically, oh, I'm going to go home and I'm going to become better. And overall, I'm going to change other people's lives. But can you share specific strategies from inside prison that helped you overcome the challenges that you faced in prison, such as, I don't know, difficulties with other prisoners, but in that time period itself, not just looking to the future, but in the present? Does that make sense? I don't know if that. Um, I'll try. I'll try to answer it. Um, um, you know, I just like for, for me, man. I just I, I I just set goals. You know, what I'm saying like I, I really set goals when I was in there. I actually still have a, a conversation book that I have, um, where I created my goals of, of, of what I wanted to do when I came out here. Um, I didn't know how that was gonna look. You know, I, you know, I was like, I don't know. You know, I, I had the slightest idea that my life would go in the direction that that it went now. Um, but I had set myself up mentally. I had myself, you know, set myself up, man, for, for, for that. You know, um, I remember when I was on on the inside, I was in a mentoring program, and one of the things that we used to do is we used to tell our stories to children, actually, like juveniles who were already on probation would come to the facility in the visiting room. We had a we had a team of guys, and we would go out there and share our stories with 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 the youth about our experiences and why they shouldn't, you know, go down, you know, the same path that we went down. And I think you know during the, during during that time it was it was I did it for like like the last seven years of my my sentence. Um, I often was the first one to raise my hand when it was time to say, okay, who's going to tell their stories this month? You know what I'm saying? And I think that was it was me unknowingly preparing myself um, for what was to come. You know what I'm saying? Because I I wanted it to 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 you know I wanted to have that practice so when I got out here it, you know it would be easier for me um, to get in front of a crowd and be able to share my story with others. Um, so that's what that's what got the ball rolling. And I, I hope I answered your question. I think I went off a little bit. No, no, no. You certainly answered my question. But I was wondering if you remember any from your head and if you're comfortable sharing, can you share some of the goals that you wrote down in your little book? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, you know, I I, I wanted I like, you know, I, I had I had financial, I had financial goals, you know what I'm saying? Um, and those financial goals, some of them have 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 uh had put up, but this is this is how my mindset was, right? Like even before I even before I went back and, and gave the life without parole sentence, right? As a lifer in there, they used to, you know, we used to see parole, the parole board like after 10 years and then after every five years, and they would just give you like a five-year continuance, you know, because you know, being charged doing time for first degree murder, you couldn't get a parole unless it was a commutation. And I remember getting a denial one time. Um, and then on the denial, I crossed out everywhere we said denial and I put parole, parole, parole all the way across the board. I put it in a, in a, in a plastic sleeve, put it on my bulletin board. And this is what I you know looked at every day when I went to sleep. And this is what I looked at every day when I woke up in the morning. I, so I envisioned my parole. And so that was the very same way that I envisioned myself out here. Like, you know, I envisioned myself, you know, learning like technology, you know what I'm saying? I was, you know, I, I consider myself like a nerd, you know what I'm saying? So I, I, I wanted to hurry up and get out here and get a computer in my hands because I felt that with a computer or a phone in my hand, um, you know, I had the, the, the world was actually like literally, you know, at my hands. And so that was a goal of mine, you know, learning that, 
um, getting affiliated with certain organizations, like the organization um, that I worked for, the State Appellate Defender's Office, that was one of my goals to be affiliated with them. I didn't know that I would end up, you know, getting hired by them, but it was a goal of mine. I went there and ended up getting hired. Uh, the campaign for the fair sentencing of youth. I read about them prior to me getting out. There was a little small little paragraph that you know said the work they were doing with ICANN, uh, the Incarcerated Children's Advocacy Network was it was a, a group of formerly incarcerated uh, juveniles across the country that were advocating for some changes. And so a goal of mine was to come out here and reach out to them. And the very I'm talking within days of me coming home, as soon as I learned how to use Messenger and Facebook, I looked up. Um, who is now the executive director of this organization. I looked him up, built a relationship with him, and now I'm working side by side with him. Um, so those are some of the goals, you know what I'm saying? Um, goals of um, getting back with my family, you know what I'm saying? I mean, even though my grandmother, thank God, she's still here and was there when I came home. Um, you know, it, you know, 27 years have, you know, created a big strain upon my family, my relationships, my sister, my brother, my aunts and uncles. I had cousins who I hadn't seen in 27 years. So that was a goal of mine to actually reconnect with them. I didn't have, I, I didn't come home with an attitude or bitter about somebody not, you know, writing me or not coming to see me. I didn't, I, I want to leave all that prison stuff behind. You know, I, I wanted to start these relationships new with my family. I want to build upon them. And most importantly, I wanted them to know that I was a different person, that I was a grown man now, and that I had let go a lot of, you know, my childhood ways. Um, and those were things that I was able to accomplish. You know what I'm saying? Getting, eventually getting my car, um, traveling you know what i'm saying i set goals to travel i've been traveling all over all over this country you know what i'm saying so far um i was able to go back to puerto rico so those are some of the goals i had set for myself and i've been able to accomplish those things and i'm still you know uh pushing towards uh you know furthering you know and accomplishing some more goals i think that your redemption story is super inspiring and i think it's also really smart to set goals just in general but especially during difficult times um, I apologize for jumping back and forth between your story and your work with juvenile delinquents, but um, from what I understand, behavior is a huge factor of stigma that currently surrounds these delinquents. Um, what trends or patterns of behaviors have you seen in the juvenile offenders or lifers that you have worked with, and what are your methods of efficiently helping them change those behaviors? Well, yeah, I think, you know, I think, you know, there's there's a there's been a, a huge misconception, right? So, and I think this is how we got to this problem in the first place. You know, um, back in, in the 80s and the 90s, there was this big uh, push um, against, you know, they they, 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 they termed this, they coined this term um, super predators, you know what I'm saying? And so I think um, what ended up happening was that there's a lot of politicians, there's a lot of people that were involved in um, uh, the, the media, uh, you know, they, they're putting out this narrative of you know these dangerous kids and that we you know we were we're, we're you know we, you know we're no good and you know they can't ever be changed and so we need to you know pass these laws to put them in prison and keep them there you know what I'm saying and that was such a a, a big misconception you know what I'm saying because as we know and, and as we've learned in the last ten or twenty years you know what I'm saying that the, the brain doesn't develop until like in your your mid twenties um, the average most children you know you know uh, grow out of crime um, there's you know, and, and I think, you know, being told um, at an early age that, that, that you know, you, you were never going to amount to nothing and that, you know, you're the worst of the worst, that was something, man, and I think, you know, it's the it's that common thing that most juveniles, man, you know, all, matter of fact, all juveniles have with us, um, where it just did something to our soul, you know what I'm saying? It just did something to our soul. To be that young and be told that 
you know, you're not going to amount to nothing. You know what I'm saying? That became like the fuel, man. That became the thing, man, that, that really, really drove uh, or has driven so many, you know, juveniles across this country to get out and, and, and show otherwise. You know what I'm saying? The vast majority, um, we got over over a thousand juvenile lifers have been released in this country. And the vast majority of them are doing great. They're entrepreneurs. They're working for nonprofits. They're advocating. And then you have some of them who are just simply living just good, normal you know, peaceful lives. You know what I'm saying? They're not reoffending. They're taking care of their families. Um, so I think that is the thing that 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 really, really um got got myself, you know what I'm saying, to come out here, man, and want to get involved in this juvenile, this juvenile justice uh, system. Um anyway, it just we we need more programming. We need more programming. Um we need more um, you know, more, you know, like, you know, I remember when I was a kid, there was, you know, numerous, numerous um um community organizations and places for kids to go um so i think and i also think that you know children also should be taught about the system right because if you're gonna if you're you're gonna expose children you know uh to go into a system um that can potentially you know keep them there for the rest of their lives I, and i think that also should be a part of of in, in school kids should learn about about the system that they're involved in man because it's you know even though we're young at the time and we probably you know it, it, it'll probably you know, be hard for us to understand it. Um, I think it's something that we need to learn. We, we, we need to learn about the juvenile justice system and how harsh it could be uh, for certain crimes. Jose, your story is one of resilience and transformation. Not to cut you off, but really quickly, what advice or message would you like to share with others who have been affected by the criminal justice system and are seeking a path to redemption and reform? I would say, man, just like, you know, don't give up. Don't give up, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, um, we all have a purpose in, in, in life. You know, we all have a purpose in life. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunity out here, man, but you have to get up and, and, and go get it. You know what I'm saying? You can't sit back. Nobody owes you nothing. You can't come out here uh, mad at the world, you know what I'm saying, for whatever it is that you went through. Um, you know, you have to believe in yourself, man. You have to believe in yourself. You have to believe that you're more than, than, than that one mistake that you made. Um, and really, really, man, just, you know, just be your authentic self. You know what I'm saying? I, I, you know, I wasn't being my authentic self when I was young. I was, I was involved in gangs and I had, you know, basically put on that, that, you know, that persona of gangs. But, and, you know, but once, like when I was in prison and I, and I went to school and I started learning and I started realizing, you know, that I was able to, like, I was, I would look at my, like, man, I'm sm actually smart. Right. And, you know, that was something that nobody ever told me that, you know what I'm saying? And so that was something that I embraced, man. And I really, really just, really felt comfortable in my own skin. You know what I'm saying? So just be your authentic self. Know that, um, you know, owe yourself. You know what I'm saying? You have to, like, I owe it to myself. You know, I, of course, I owe society for something that I did. Of course, I owe the victims in my case, you know what I'm saying, um, to do better. But most importantly, I owe it to myself um, to come out here and just be the best that I can be, man. And, you know, I don't have to be defined by what, by what it is I went through. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, life after prison is still possible. Um, success after prison is still possible. You know, I'm a prime example of that. You know, that's one of the things that really, really pushes me because I want to be an example for those that come behind me. Like, hey, if you want it bad enough, you can get it. You know what I'm saying? And it doesn't have to be an advocate. You know what I'm saying? If you're, if your your path is a truck driver, just be the best damn truck driver you can be. You know what I'm saying? Um, if you're going to be somebody cleaning toilets, be that, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's okay. You know what I'm saying? Just be the person um, that you are. Uh, embrace, you know, embrace the process. Don't cheat the process. You know what I'm saying? And, and you can make it. It's, it's it's possible. I've seen it done with myself and, and many, many, many others who have come um, before me. And I'm sure 
uh, after me as well. Well, thank you so much, Jose, for joining us. Um, to the listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of A Second Chance, Stories of Young Offenders. Until next time, remember that your story is still being written and that there's always hope for a brighter future. See you soon. Thank <laughs> you.